My name is Jeff Barrows. My background is OBGYN. I practiced OBGYN in a small town in Ohio for many years before God called me into this anti-human trafficking realm in 2004, 10 years ago. And I've been working in various capacities in that arena, um, mainly to train healthcare professionals like all of you today. So um, got a lot to say and, and uh, um, Hopefully, we can have a good question and answer time at the end. So with that, I'm going to get started. I don't know if we can turn down the lights here at the front. I don't think anybody needs to see me. They need to see the slides. Okay. Uh, wherever, uh, I've got a few handouts, probably not quite enough for everybody, but maybe in the back there, uh, just some indicators of trafficking. Um, I'm supposed to give this disclosure that I have no financial relationship to disclose as well as no, I will not be discussing any off-label use or investigational use of drugs or in my presentation. Here are my educational objectives for all of you, my goal, hopefully, that by the end of the presentation you'll be able to describe the scope and general characteristics of human trafficking here in the United States. Number two, to recognize common indicators and high-risk factors for human trafficking. And number three, to be able to evaluate and assess whether a patient in the healthcare setting is in fact a victim of trafficking. Now, how many of you attended uh, Dr. Letter's lecture last night? I see the vast majority. Um, most of this will be new material. Uh, I do want to bring up that she mentioned the TVPA. That was passed in 2000. That's the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And it's out of that that we're going to get the definition for human trafficking, the legal definition. And when Congress passed this law, whenever they pass a law that deals with criminal activity, they're passing a law in the light of what does it take to convict someone of that particular crime. And in the case of human trafficking, there are three components necessary for a prosecutor to convict someone of human trafficking. And those components are certain actions, one of these actions, not all of them, but recruiting, harboring, transporting, obtaining, or exploiting. Just one of those the prosecutor has to prove through the means, and one of three means, force, fraud, or coercion, into either sexual or labor exploitation. So, for instance, if a man recruits a woman through coercion into sexual exploitation, he can be convicted of human trafficking. Turn the coin around... And we can define a victim. If a man or a woman have been recruited through coercion into sexual exploitation, they are legally a victim of human trafficking. So that's our definition of trafficking here in the United States, which closely, closely mirrors the global definition as well, by the way. Now, there's one major exception to this definition, and that is when dealing with a minor, defined as someone under the age of 18, that's involved in sexual exploitation. Because if you stop and you think about it, you only need to prove force, fraud, or coercion when you otherwise believe that someone can give consent to that activity. But Congress said, wait a minute. Do we believe that a 15-year-old can give consent to commercial sex? And that was a philosophical question for them, that they wrestled through and fortunately came down on the right side by saying 
No, we do not believe that a 15, 16, 17-year-old boy or girl can give consent to commercial sex. Therefore, there is no need to prove forced fraud or coercion. Anytime a minor is in some form of sexual exploitation, they are automatically a victim of sex trafficking. Now, it doesn't apply to labor trafficking because we believe that a 16-year-old can give consent to working at McDonald's or wherever, right? But it does apply to sexual exploitation. So that major exception. So I'm going to be dealing with the two major types of exploitation here in the United States, which is sexual exploitation, labor exploitation. And by the way, a good general definition for trafficking is any form of exploitation of one human being by another for personal or financial gain. So trafficking is not movement, it's exploitation. Okay? Now, when we look at the two forms, we call have sexual exploitation and labor exploitation. We call them sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Those are the two main kinds of trafficking here in the United States. Now, in addition to two kinds of trafficking, we have two types of victims. We have international victims that are brought in from other countries into the United States for either sexual or labor exploitation. And we have domestic victims, U.S. citizens or naturalized citizens that are being trafficked into either sexual or labor exploitation. So that turns out to give us four subtypes of trafficking. We have international sex trafficking, international labor trafficking. We have domestic sex trafficking and domestic labor trafficking. And they're all really very different. Now, the most common of all those four types in general around the country is domestic sex trafficking. But we have all of them all around us. Now, Dr. Letter mentioned one report last night. This is a different one that came out in 2012 about the scope of trafficking. It was produced by the International Labor Organization, the ILO, which is part of the United Nations. And they spent several years gathering data on coming up with a good, solid estimate on the number of trafficking victims worldwide. And if you add up all these numbers, you get 20.9 million. So the report that Dr. Letter had last night talked about 28.1 million. This is 20.9. So somewhere between 21 and 28 million people worldwide being trafficked. Okay? Astounding number. One thing about this report, though, is that it divided the globe into various regions by socioeconomic status, and they estimated a prevalence rate for each of those regions. In other words, the prevalence of victims by population. And you see, if you look, that the United States, North America, is grouped with Western Europe and Australia. And we have a prevalence rate of 1.5 victims per 1,000 population. We'll talk about that in a minute. But that's the overall scope, about 21 million people worldwide. Now, when we break that down, there are three groups that they found. There is a group of what they call state-imposed trafficking. That's There are countries in the world that actually force their citizens into trafficking, typically labor trafficking. Then there's sexual exploitation, which is about 4.5 million people, which is probably a low number. And then we're left with this large group of labor exploitation, labor trafficking, 14.2 million people worldwide. That also is probably a low number. Numbers are estimated into possibly as many as 20 million people alone 
that are involved and trapped in labor exploitation. So there's a series of shocks with this, okay? I think we're all shocked, and you were probably left last night shocked, that slavery is still going on today. You're probably shocked as well that of the numbers, that it's millions. We're not talking just thousands or hundreds of thousands. We're talking millions of people. Well, I'm going to take you into a third shock today, and one that's going to be a little bit more painful, I think. Why do we have 14.2 million people trapped in labor exploitation? Well, the answer is because there are people buying the products they're making. And who are the people that are buying? Yes, we are. Every one of us. If you came here in a vehicle that had rubber tires, you've contributed to labor trafficking. If you have a cell phone, you've contributed to labor trafficking. If you have a computer, you've contributed to labor trafficking. We are all, in one way or another, complicit in this. We are contributing. Now, I don't mean to depress you or shame you or guilt you. What's my goal? I want to raise your awareness that not only is trafficking happening on the other side of the world and all around us, but we are contributing to it. And I hopefully want to motivate you to begin doing something about it. And fortunately, there are some ways. Before we get to that, the more of the scope, in terms of gender of those being trafficked, majority, 55% are female, 45% male, and then a little over one in four of the trafficking victims are minors across the world. And again, most of those in child labor. Here's a resource. Slaveryfootprint.org. You can go to that website and you can take a series, a survey that will tell you how many slaves you are employing. Notice it's not, are you employing slaves? It's how many. I put this off for a year because I didn't want to know. And I can tell you the number I came up with is very depressing. But we are all, in that 14 to 20 million, we're each supporting some of those. Now, it's, I mentioned cars, automobiles, the house, food, clothing, cotton. One of the countries that's state-induced trafficking is uh, in, in Central Asia. I won't mention the name of the country, but the the government forces their citizens to harvest cotton that comes into our clothing. They aren't paid. Jewelry, diamonds, 60% worldwide are by child labor. The mining, all kinds of electronics. So what you can do is see what area you are, and then what we have to do as consumers is send feedback 
back to the producers and say to them, we want you to follow the labor trail all the way back because we don't want to buy any kind of product that is made with slave labor. That is the only way we're going to change this. It's when us as consumers say to the people we're buying from, stop producing with slave labor and be willing to pay 10, 15, 20% more for what we're buying. Otherwise, this is going to continue on and on and on. So there are resources. Another one is freetowork.org. This will actually, this website will lead you to there. And you can find more specific studies on things like chocolate and coffee, two of my favorite things, but also very commonly produced with slave labor. I don't have a lot of time to spend on that. I want to move on now to, to um, how can we in healthcare directly combat trafficking? This is a map that is, was produced in 2013 by uh, the State Department's office along with the Protection Project. Every country you see there that has a color, which is every country with the exception of Greenland, has a problem with child sex trafficking. Yeah, it's depressing. Greenland isn't a color because it only has a population of about 38,000 and so far nothing has been reported. doesn't mean it's not there as well. It's just too low a population. Every other country of the world has a problem with it. So let's talk about trafficking within the United States. The smallest countries in Eastern Europe, Moldova has become a leading exporter of women and girls into the global sex trade. Posing as buyers and wearing hidden shirt cameras, the crew set out to see how pervasive human trafficking has become here. I had a business card that said exotic entertainment. I pretended I was a guy from the West who's interested in buying Eastern European girls. From the get-go, it was very plain and simple. Can I buy girls from you? Yes. How much? She got very excited because there she had a, a brand new opportunity to start selling girls to North America. So the next step for her is to find those kind of girls for me. Newspaper ads are often used by recruiters. Some women understand their code for sex work, but a good percentage are fooled by the traffickers. Three things to take away from that video. Number one, the gender of the trafficker. 
most common gender in Eastern Europe is female. They are very good recruiters because girls trust them. Number two, did you notice how they're talking about the girls like a commodity? Because that's what they are. Number three, for us in healthcare, it's the control of the passport issue. And that's when we'll talk about that in a little bit. That's a, a major, major point. So how many victims of trafficking do we have here in the United States? Well, remember that ILO report said they estimate minimum of one and a half victims per 1,000 population. Well, we have 314 million. You take that prevalence rate, multiply it out, we have a little under 500,000 victims of trafficking here in the United States. That's all kinds. That's international, domestic, sex, and labor. Total number, just under a half a million. That means that we have thousands per state. We're not talking hundreds here in Kentucky or wherever you're from. We're talking thousands of victims. This is a map that was drawn and put out by uh, Polaris Project, which, which runs the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And these are reported cases. This is not all the cases, but these are reported cases between 2007 and 2012. And you can see it pretty well covers the country. And this is only the tip of the iceberg between all the victims that are out there. Now, what are the venues for international sex trafficking venues? There's some differences with venues between international and domestic. Um, topless clubs, typically here along eastern United States and southern United States, the Russian mafia will run topless clubs, and they will recruit out of eastern Europe to supply the girls into it. You've got Asian massage parlors, which are run by either Chinese or South Korean criminal networks. You've got online escorts. Latino brothels are located in residential areas, and they're run by various Latino criminal networks. Very difficult to get into because they only allow Latinos as the Johns or as the, the buyer. And as Dr. Letter said last night, you have major sporting events. Uh, we have, I'm from Ohio, and near the Columbus area, and uh, a group of us, you know, we're, we're used to thinking about the, the Arnold Classic and things that bring men in. And then one, one day we decided, what do you think about the Mirfield Golf Tournament? And sure enough, we saw an increase in listings for girls around the Mirfield Golf Tournament every spring. Any kind of major event that will bring men in. Now... What about international labor trafficking venues, domestic servants, people brought in to work in the home, or sweatshops, factories, janitorial jobs, construction sites, any kind of international restaurant, hotels, farm work, any kind of work that doesn't require a lot of training or education, these people can be trafficked into literally all around us. Where are they coming from? This is a map, again, that came out of the protection project out of Johns Hopkins and uh, taking data from the State Department. These are the major regions of the world, some Eastern Europe, Asia, Eastern Africa, and then South and Central America. So there are certain routes that people are brought into the United States, and then they're spread out all over the, the country. You remember this picture of the Macedonian trafficker last night? I love this picture because... He just looks like a trafficker. 
He's ugly. He's mean looking. And the other thing I always try and point out is this is Interpol, moving him from one jail to the other. And uh, they've got their, their faces obviously covered. They're wearing bulletproof vests, carrying machine guns, because they are fearful of the criminal network that he's a part of. So international traffickers are part of very extensive criminal networks which comes into play as we encounter these victims in healthcare. Are we going to be prepared to deal with a network that this police force is fearful of? Because international trafficking is, is very uh, complicated. You have to recruit in the home country. You have to prepare travel documents. You've got to transport them across an international border. You have to get them into the United States or Western Europe, wherever they're going. Then you have to get them out into the trafficking scenario. So international trafficking tends to be run by very sophisticated criminal networks. Now I'm going to move quickly into domestic trafficking, which is an entirely different arena. And that's, again, trafficking of our U.S. citizens. Now, international trafficking in the United States tends to be a little bit more labor, but pretty close to the number of sex trafficking. They're, they're fairly close depending on the study you look at. But in terms of domestic trafficking, by far, it's far more sex trafficking than labor trafficking. So the vast majority of domestic trafficking is a form of domestic sex trafficking. What's the venues? Well, we add street prostitution. Uh, to, to this. You won't see internationals on the street, but you will see domestic. Uh, topless clubs as well, but they'll be, instead of owned by the Russian mafia, they'll be owned by, by criminal networks here in the United States. Massage parlors, online escorts, truck stops are another area where, where traffickers here from the United States will take girls out to a truck stop and sell them to truckers along major interstates. And then, of course, major sporting events. And then there's the subset of domestic minor sex trafficking, which is, unfortunately, a large piece of this whole domestic sex trafficking. These are kids under the age of 18 that come out of abusive homes. And the estimate, and it's purely an estimate, is that a minimum of 100,000 kids are out there being trafficked. So 100,000 probably in that makes up in that uh, roughly 500,000 of victims. If a girl starts into sexual exploitation under the age of 18, the average age she starts is 13. We have data in Ohio where we have interviewed women who are survivors of domestic sex trafficking, asking them, how old were you when you start? The average, average age is 13, seventh grade. If
and it's happening right here in the United States. When you have um, drugs, when you have guns and that type of thing, you have to replace your, your product. You have to come up with more drugs. You have to come up with more arms. You sell them once, they're gone, and you have to come up with something else to sell. With trafficking in individuals, with children, with adults, you can sell them over and over and over again. We've conducted field assessments in locations all across the United States, and I can say with absolute certainty that sex trafficking is occurring here within our own communities. American children are being sold in commercial sex markets every day. So where do they come from? Where do these kids, this 100,000 kids, our American kids, come from? Well, they come out of abusive homes. And you in healthcare are aware, hopefully, how prevalent abuse is in our society. There are between one and three million reports of abuse every single year. Physical, sexual, emotional abuse, neglect. And what happens when a young person is abused like that, they have very low self-esteem and that makes them extremely vulnerable to the manipulation of a trafficker. So this is not by socioeconomic strata, okay? International trafficking, the main predisposing factor is poverty. Domestic trafficking, the main predisposing factor is abuse. So why is this such a huge problem? Well, Dr. Letter briefly addressed it last night. It's called demand or money. I have talked to several detectives around the country and they say that without fail, a girl out there can make easily $500 a night. And if she knows what she's doing and her trafficker is very good at getting her out there, she can make between $750 and $1,000 every single night. Now do the math. They're working every night. How much money is that? It's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And believe it, they don't pay taxes, right? This is all profit. That's a lot of motivation for a trafficker to get out and find these girls. Now, this is a very critical slide. I don't know how well you can see it. This is out of uh, Covenant House in New York, which is a, an organization that takes care of kids that have come out of trafficking scenarios. And they ask them, who are your traffickers? Over one-third were immediate family members. Yes, it's sick. It's important for us in healthcare because mothers will traffic their daughters, fathers will traffic their daughters, stepmothers, stepfathers, grandparents, all of them will traffic. So in healthcare, we might think and see other indicators and say, but wait a minute, this is their mother, so I know they can't be being trafficked. Oh, yes, they can. In fact, if you look at this graph, only 9% were strangers. 27% were boyfriends. 14% were friends of the family. The vast majority of these kids' traffickers are people that they know. So we have to remember that when we see them in healthcare and not be fooled out of thinking maybe they're not being trafficked. So how does this happen? Real quickly, uh, there are two major types of traffickers. Uh, I like the term gorilla pimp. Some people don't. I like it because it's very descriptive. It's somebody who basically uses brute force like a gorilla to control their victim. 
They may initially, if they don't aren't in the family, if they happen to be a stranger, they'll fool them into coming home with them, and then after that, they rape and beat them until they agree to work in prostitution. The other more common type is what we call a finesse pimp. This is somebody who will finesse themselves into a relationship with these girls. And they do it by making initial contact, for instance, commonly now on the Internet. What are teenage girls doing? If they have access to the Internet, they're getting on Facebook and MySpace and whatever other space is out there, the the social networking sites, and they're talking about all their problems. And these guys just come and look for that, and then they come along in this little chat room and they just say, oh, you poor thing. You poor thing. How dare they treat you that way? Or they may go to a mall. We have in Columbus, we have a mall, Polaris Mall, if you're from, from the area. I've talked to police that have had found traffickers recruiting out of Polaris Mall, which is the nicest mall in the city of Columbus. They find girls there. They get this initial contact and then they seduce them into a relationship. Typically, these are older guys talking to 14, 15-year-old girls. Normal 15-year-old girls go gaga over 19, 20-year-old guys, right? Imagine a girl that's coming out of an abusive home that has no self-esteem. And suddenly this guy says, you're beautiful. Don't you have a boyfriend? You're lovely. You're wonderful. So they get seduced into this relationship. And then over time, they increase control in a variety of ways. And then stage four is they separate them from whatever support system they've got. Foster care, parents, whatever. And then finally, the last stage is where they get trauma bonded. They are using a similar to the Stockholm Syndrome, using alternating force and affection to get them trauma bonded to them. This is a quote from a trafficker. You promise a girl heaven and she'll follow you to hell. What we have learned is that overwhelmingly, uh, while these kids uh, may leave home voluntarily, while they may be runaways or uh, any any one of a variety of variations on that theme, um, they are seduced, they are tricked, they are lured into this practice, and then they lose the ability to walk away. Uh, These kids literally become 21st century slaves. It was the things that you said were things that I've never felt before. I was actually felt like I was loved by somebody for the first time. And I put all of my trust and all of my faith in him. And the way that he got me was he told me, let's go for a ride. I got to pick something up in Indianapolis. And he said we were coming back that night. So I drove with them out to Indianapolis. And when we got out there, that's when he told me we were So just like she said, he told me things I've never heard before. I mean, to hear just the stories of kids that have been abused, where the fathers and mothers will say horrific things to them. Horrific. You can imagine then that somebody comes along and says, wait a minute, you're beautiful, you're special. They latch on to that. And so they are just primed to be recruited. Unfortunately, when they run away from home, they think the street has got to be better, but actually it's usually worse. So once these traffickers pick them up, where do they sell them? Backpage is now the most common site. Uh, Laura talked about it briefly last night. Backpage, anybody heard of it? Familiar with it? A few of you? Very similar to Craigslist. Every city has, every major city has a Backpage 
listing. You can literally buy or sell anything on Backpage. But there are others. Craigslist is still a place where you can uh, find girls that are for sale. Eros.com, Facebook, MySpace, various messages. There's all kinds of Internet sites out there. Now, Backpage, this is what it looks like. Uh, this is a listing I took from here in Louisville. It's been a few, few weeks ago. Um, but what they do is they'll have this line of very seductive and uh, suggestive language. At the end, they'll give the age. You click on that and you see a picture. There'll be a cell phone number and you can make connection. Now, a trafficker, if he's got somebody under the age of 18, is smart enough not to put down 14. So how does he get the message across? Well, they use code words. Code words like sweet, petite, barbie, New to town, fresh, those kinds of words that give the buyer the idea that maybe, maybe, just lost something here, that maybe it's a young girl that they've got uh, that you can buy. Um, typically, I noticed here in Louisville the number of listings that you might see might be as many as 20 to 30 on an average weekend per, per night. I do want to point out, too, I've been focusing on girls. Uh, that's because girls are the most common. Probably 85% of victims are girls, but there are male victims out there. Our numbers are between 10 and 15%. They tend to escape the, the brutal control of a trafficker, but they still fall prey to this, and we still, especially minors, we still would call them victims of trafficking. So what's our role in healthcare? Let's move through this quickly. I am a little behind. This is a, a study out of uh, Southern California where they interviewed uh, victims of international trafficking. They've been brought in from the Central and South America for both sex and labor trafficking. They had been freed, and then they interviewed them and, in this aftercare facility, and they asked them, how many of you encountered health care while you were being trafficked? And 50%. 50%, small number of, of, of interviewees, but still 50% had encountered health care. Then how many of you were freed as a result of that encounter? None. Okay. Then Laura's study that she briefly mentioned last night, she did this last year, just came out, published this year. She went around and, and some of her associates interviewed victims of domestic sex trafficking, okay? U.S. citizens, and asked how many of you encountered health care? Almost 88%. How many of you were freed? None. Where were they seen? Vast majority in the ER, but various clinics, Planned Parent, abortion clinics, uh, family physician, urgent care, women's clinics, neighborhood clinics, free clinics, variety of places that they're being seen. Here's another study out of uh, Oakland by a, a nonprofit group called Missy that does outreach to kids that are currently being trafficked. They don't have a residential facility, but they reach out to them. And look at this, 77%, more than three-quarters, were currently under the care of a doctor. One-third were getting prescriptions, and almost half had been hospitalized. But nobody was recognizing them. Now, here's why. This is a study out of Harvard that was done two years ago. And what they did is they went to four major ERs in the northeastern United States, and they surveyed the ER personnel, physicians, residents, nurses, the whole group, on their knowledge of trafficking. Now, initially, a lot of them said, yeah, I know what trafficking is. It's three quarters. But then when it came to actually defining it, only one in five could define it. And notice this, 98%, the vast majority, had never had any formal training on trafficking. 
Only 2% had had any training. Was it a problem in their ER? Over 60% were unsure, and less than 5% were confident in their ability to identify a victim of trafficking, and only 7% were confident in their ability to treat a victim of trafficking. So here we got, on the one hand, all these people coming into contact with healthcare, especially in the ER, and then very few ER personnel that had been trained on it. What they did in this study is they did a 20-minute training. It's very similar to what I'm doing. And then afterwards, 90% were confident in their ability to define trafficking. Over 50% were confident in their ability to identify and treat a victim of trafficking. And over 90% thought the training was useful. So let's get into the training itself. Now, first of all, I've been creating a category for you. Okay, So our time isn't wasted. I think that... Uh, when we encounter victims of trafficking in healthcare and haven't been trained, we come away from that encounter thinking something very weird is going on, but I don't know what it is. And the reason we don't know if we haven't been trained is we don't have a category. So that's why I've spent this much time creating that category. So how might they present? Well, I wish it was this easy. I wouldn't need to be here. All we've got to do is learn how to read and then watch for that T-shirt. But unfortunately, these victims do not self-identify. And for that reason, we need to look at them as if they are drowning victims. And they literally or figuratively are. Okay? We have to reach beneath the surface to get a hold of them to free them out. A lot of them don't even know that they're being trafficked. They don't know the term. So here's a mnemonic that I and a group of people put together with Health and Human Services this past year. We're developing a curriculum across the country to train healthcare professionals. SOAR, S-O-A-R. And again, S is stop. Stop and consider. When you start seeing some of the indicators I'm going to talk about and you're getting some of these weird vibes, instead of walking away from that encounter thinking, I don't know what's going on, now hopefully you can say, hmm, is this trafficking? So what are the indicators? There are three categories. By definition, everyone who's being trafficked is being controlled. So we look for those indicators of control. The strange red flags I'll talk about, and then there are various physical indicators that these victims will show. In terms of indicators of control, remember, they may be, there are two major ways to control somebody. You either do it through physical threat or through psychological manipulation. International trafficking is by far physical threat. Domestic trafficking is by far psychological manipulation. Okay? So they come in and they have somebody there, and that somebody that's with them may be their husband. I've known women who were trafficked by their husbands. Maybe a father, mother, doesn't matter. But they're there and they're controlling the conversation. They're correcting the patient, which is a little strange. They're always answering the questions. They may not even allow the patient to answer, and all of a sudden, hopefully, we kind of go, what is going on here? Um, they don't want to leave the exam room. Now, practicing OBGYN for a number of years, I never had a, a, a husband that demanded to stay in for the pelvic exam. He wanted to get out and read Sports Illustrated in the waiting room. Usually it was the wife that said, uh-uh, you're staying here. You got me this way, you sit right there. But in this situation, it's a guy that is demanding to be in through the full examination. That should set a little alarms off inside of us. 
What else? We have to watch the body language of the patient. That study that was done in UCLA with the international victims, one of the women was very angry with the doctor because she said, I was doing everything in my power to non-verbally tell that doctor I couldn't stand the man who came in with me. She couldn't say anything because he was in the room with her. And she knew she'd get beaten. She said, I moved to the side of the exam table. I pulled away every time he came near me and touched me. I glared at him. And still the doctor was absolutely clueless. We have to watch body language, especially for things like fear or anger or anxiety, submission in the interactions with this other person. They're not going to be in control of ID documents, as we mentioned in the video. They're not going to be in control of money. And by the way, these people, if they pay, which is an if, if they pay, they will pay in cash. And it'll be the person accompanying them. And then the, the patient may avoid eye contact because of the inherent shame in the trafficking scenario. Now, if they're under psychological manipulation, they may come in alone. Again, especially domestic victims. One of the ways that domestic traffickers control their girls is early on, if they've recruited them off the street at age 15, 16, they'll have a child with that girl. And then they use the child to control her. So she gets sick. He says, well, go to the clinic. I'll keep the baby here. As long as he's got the baby, he knows that she's going to come back, right? So we have to look for other things other than that controlling person with him. Now, one thing that he's going to do, he's going to still be very interested in what's going on, so he'll text her. So you'll get somebody that's getting frequent texts or even frequent phone calls during the examination. She'll pick up, which is a little odd, during the exam. She'll be anxious to leave, be in a hurry, wanting to know how long is this going to take, more than usual. And then uh, um, other things you might look for is clothing inconsistent with weather. If they're in, in prostitution, they're going to be wearing very skimpy clothing. In the winter, that's not going to make sense. They may have a large amount of cash, especially if it's the end of the night, early morning. If they've been working all night, they may have $750 to $1,000 in cash on them. Here's a big one. The domestic traffickers have circuits. They take their girls. They don't leave them in one place. They have a regional circuit. So here in Louisville, they may move them to Lexington. They may take them over to West Virginia, up to Cincinnati, um, down into Tennessee. Uh, there'll be a circuit, a regional circuit that will cover several states. And after a while, a girl stops keeping track of where she is. So she gets brought into the ER. She might look up and say, by the way, what city am I in? That's a weird question. Or she might say, I don't have an address. Or, you know, make up a story. Well, we just moved so they can't give an address because she doesn't have an address. They may be appearing to be lying about their age. Some other things are going to be very poor historians because they're traumatized. Traumatized people lose the sense of time. And, of course, to give a good history, we have to have a sense of our timeline, be able to answer when did that symptom begin, when did it get worse, that type of thing. Well, they don't have a sense of time if they're traumatized. The history may keep changing. The pieces won't seem to fit together. You come away, something weird is going on, and you're not getting the whole story. These are red flags. Finally, it'll be a late presentation. You will not see an unruptured appendix in the ER with these people. It will be ruptured and late, and you'll kind of wonder, why did you wait so long to come in? And there may be an answer, and the answer is that somebody was keeping them from coming in. So... 
Uh, let me read this, since many of you may not be able to read it. This, unfortunately, is a true story, but it uh, will bring out a lot of little clinical things that I think will help. A 16-year-old female named Jill is brought to the ER by her brother. Upon presentation to the ER desk, Jill is barely able to stand and appears about to have a syncopal episode. For that reason, the triage nurse is immediately notified, and Jill and her brother are brought back into the exam room. Upon questioning, Jill's brother does all the talking. He states that Jill began bleeding just in the past hour, brought her immediately to the ER. He further adds that two years prior, their parents were killed in an automobile accident, and since that time, Jill has been suffering from schizophrenia and various delusions. Brief initial exam shows some blood loss on her clothing, pale conjunctiva and skin, but Jill is conscious. You ask her questions, but she just seems to stare off into space. Now, some questions. The following are all possible signs of trafficking except... Number one, Jill's general condition suggests blood loss greater than stated by the brother. Number two, the brother does all the talking. Number three, Jill's alleged schizophrenia. And number four, Jill's strange affect when questioned. So which of those is not a sign of trafficking? How many think number one? How many think number two? Number three? And number four? A lot of you... Uh, raising your hand. The answer is three. It's her alleged schizophrenia. She might have schizophrenia, um, but you need to check that out. So what if you do? You start seeing some of these indicators. What's the next step? In SOAR, it's O, observe. And that's where we do the, the examine the patient. Now, there are uh, a lot of physical indicators that, that complement both international and domestic trafficking, but there's some that are a little different with international uh, and overall, you're going to see signs of psychological distress. They're going to be, in other words, acting strange, weird, uh, may be sleep-deprived, malnutrition, dental trauma because of the trauma that's inherent in the trafficking scenario. But here's one that's going to be unique, and that's lack of immunization. Whenever someone legally immigrates into the United States, they have to, be prove, they have to prove that they've been immunized against all the normal childhood diseases. But a lot of these victims are brought in illegally, so they may present with mumps or chickenpox. They haven't been immunized. Another one is, is tuberculosis, unusual infections. They're going to show physical trauma, such as burns, evidence of sexual trauma, uh, GI complaints from the stress, and then obviously if they're in sexual trafficking, multiple STIs. So those are some of the physical indicators. Now, domestic indicators, many of the same, but one addition, and that is tattoos. Domestic traffickers love to tattoo their girls with their street name. It's a way to show, you are my property, you belong to me. International traffickers don't do this. Domestic traffickers, by and large, do. And they all have their own unique street name. You won't see the immunization issue, and you won't see unusual infections like TB, but you'll see a lot of the STIs. If they've had a pap smear, obviously highly abnormal pap, especially for their younger age and the frequent need for pregnancy test. So let's go back to Jill. You do a physical exam on Jill, and you find she's got scars on both wrists and ankles, scar on her neck and across her larynx. She's got an enlarged uterus. You do a pelvic exam, and you see recent evidence of recent manipulation of the cervix. The anterior cervix has been grabbed by something. Active uterine bleeding. A lab shows a positive HCG and a significant anemia. Now, 
All of those physical findings suggest trafficking except, number one, scars on wrists and ankles, number two, scar on the neck, number three, recent trauma and manipulation of the cervix, number four, enlarged uterus. How many think it's one, two, three, four? Ah, good, you're paying attention. Now, a tentative diagnosis is made on Jill for retained products of conception, and she's taken to the R where the ENC is done, and she also has two units of blood that are given. She's actually, uh, this has been a while ago. If it was today, she would not have been admitted because of the changes in, in um, uh, protocol. But uh, in this particular time, she was hospitalized overnight. We'll get back to her. So what do you do at this point if suspicions increase after the exam? This is where you have to ask the A. So, so far we've stopped, observe, A is ask, and this is where if you've not yet separated the potential trafficker from them, this is when you have to do it because it won't do any good to have the trafficker in the room to ask her any questions. She will not give a truthful answer. So if it's a husband, father, whatever, you have to get them separated. Um, the next thing you need to do is you need to have an interviewer who takes time with the patient who, again, remember, is highly traumatized and understands trauma-informed care and develops a relationship of trust with that patient and gets the message across, you can trust us with anything confidential. We're here to help you. Be careful by saying we can protect you. Because if it's an international trafficking and somebody has a gun out in the waiting room, can you really protect them? Um, so, but we want to have trained interviewers that know and understand trauma and trafficking to ask the questions. And those people might be a, a hospital social worker, sane or safe nurse, or a specially trained trauma nurse. But here are the questions, and the questions are different for international than domestic. For international, it's, it's around their scenario. Can you leave your work or job situation if you want? When you're not working, can you come and go as you please? Have you been threatened with harm if you try and quit? Has anyone threatened your family back home in their home country? What are your working or living conditions like? Where do you sleep and eat? Do you have to ask permission to eat, sleep, or go to the bathroom? Is there a lock on your door so that you cannot get out? Obviously, a yes on any of those is somewhat alarming. You don't say, are you being trafficked? They will look at you and go, huh? Because they don't know what that is. Now, domestic, because so much of it is psychological control rather than physical control, we have a whole entirely different set of questions. Have you been asked to have sex with multiple men each night? Do you have to meet a quota of money before you can safely return home? Has someone forced you to perform sexually before a camera? Has anyone taken sexually suggestive photos to post on the Internet? We do not ask or use the P word, prostitution. We get around that. We just talk about what happens in sexual exploitation. So what do you do? The final is the R. We have to respond. And this is critical. To respond properly and safely, you have to be prepared in advance. If you're not prepared in advance, don't try and respond. Uh, and because it's going to be more dangerous for her and for you. Now, what do you do to prepare? I believe that you need to develop a response protocol. First step in that is connecting with all the local anti-trafficking uh, contacts. One of the biggest mistakes that you can make is to think, okay, this is a victim of trafficking. Let me call the local police, and you assume that the police have been trained on trafficking. 
Now, I happen to know that here in Louisville, all the local police have been trained, but that's not true. That's the exception. Around the country, there are lots of major cities that local police have never been trained on trafficking. And you talk, you get on the phone and you say, I have a victim of trafficking. They may, they may wonder, what are you talking about? You, get, you got drugs? So you have to make connections ahead of time. You can call this hotline. That's the Polaris Project hotline number, 888-3737-888. 15% of their calls are for information, and they will connect you with law enforcement and service providers and other groups in your area that are actively working to fight trafficking. So you have to make those connections first. Second, you've got to designate somebody in that clinic or hospital that begins to go out to those people and find out and the information. You want to make contact with state, local, and federal law enforcement because with, uh, with international trafficking, you have to deal with the FBI. You've got to deal with minors with Child Protective Services. And then they need to begin gathering information. What is the local trafficking situation like? Like, for instance, here in Louisville. What's the international trafficking picture look like? Law enforcement, if they're keyed in, will know that. Who are the local domestic traffickers? They'll know that. Who, what's the response capability? How do they want you to respond and report to them? Various things that you put together in a protocol. Then you condense it together. And you put together a list of local trafficking indicators that include the names of local traffickers that are being used as in tattoos. So instead of just looking for a general tattoo, you're looking for a specific tattoo that's, that's here in Louisville. How to separate the potential victim of trafficking. Who's going to be the designated interviewer? How are you going to get interpreting services for international victims? How do you ensure safety and security for that victim? When to intervene. We are mandated reporters, but we're not mandated interveners. Okay? So when do we intervene? Do we ever intervene? How do we, what do we do when the patient refuses intervention, which will be very common? Those are all parts that you work out ahead of time in a protocol and then you train your staff. So back to Jill. All of the following are reasonable responses to Jill's situation, except number one, obtain a psych consult. Number two, have social services interview Jill. Number three, dial 911. Number four, notify a local anti-trafficking service provider. Who thinks it's number one? Number two? Number three? Very good, very good. All right, now that's part of the work I do with Hope for Justice is uh, being available to help hospitals put together a response protocol. I do want to point out some resources with CMDA. A group of us have put together 11 in-depth educational modules on various aspects of trafficking. Uh, you can find them at cmda.org forward slash TIP. That's trafficking in persons. cmda.org forward slash TIP. I've also put together a, um, a video through CMDA. Um, what's the video series? I've forgotten the name of it. Um, just Add Water. There's a whole series, and I put together a couple of years ago, I Just Add Water on Trafficking. This is uh, the nonprofit I work for as well. It has other resources, hopeforjustice.org forward slash training. Let me just leave uh, this off for reminding you of three things in this topic. When you walk out the door... My goal is hopefully that you will remember that human trafficking is all around us. It is not just over in Thailand or Cambodia. It's wherever you are. Number two, we are all contributing to the problem of human trafficking because we are consumers. And number three, we all have the capacity to stop it. So with that, I'll stop for questions.
Sure. It's 888 3737. 888. Yes. Well, you got a couple questions there. Um, I think one question is, is what he's doing in the video, let me repeat the question, uh, the, the video on the domestic trafficker in Atlanta, is what he is doing illegal? And number two, are they being prosecuted? Those are two separate questions. The vast majority of states now, it is illegal. Um, for a long time, there were police arresting girls in prostitution at age 16. But I say that across the country that's shifted and the vast majority of states have adopted laws that specifically state that any form of sexual exploitation of a minor is illegal. Second part, are they being found and prosecuted? That's a different matter because it all boils down to um, manpower and priorities for the chief of police. And unfortunately, in the vast majority of our cities across the country, the number one priority is drugs not human trafficking. So a lot of times these guys are getting away with this because the police don't have the manpower to go after it. Okay. Yes. The question is, uh, in my, my work, do I see uh, the tide changing or the potential? I don't see the tide changing yet, but I do see the potential. Let me use the example of child abuse. The history of child abuse is very instructive. The first article in the medical literature that really hit on child abuse was in 1962 by Dr. Kemp, pediatrician, and it was t entitled The Battered Child Syndrome. And in that article... 1962, Dr. Kemp said, in my best estimation, I think that there are 749 battered children in the entire United States. Okay? It's 1962. 1969, they reported 60,000 battered children. 1979, it was 600,000. And it took to the 1980s and 90s to get into the millions. So 30 years. I hope it doesn't take us 30 years in medicine with trafficking, but it's going to take some time. It's going to be at least 10 years. So I do see hope for it, but it's, it's taking a long time to get awareness raised. Yes, in the back. The question is, has any of this curriculum been integrated into residency programs? Uh, there's a group of us nationally that are trying to do that. Uh, Dr. Letter is also I'm working with her in some capacities to do that. I don't know of any residency where this has really been put into play. I will say that the specialty that's leading the way is pediatrics because of their background in child abuse. They're used to this. The other specialties aren't as much. But pediatrics, the American Academy of Pediatrics has really taken this on, and I understand that they're moving ahead very rapidly to integrate this into their training curriculums, which I'm excited to see. It's not there yet. When you call that hotline, how quickly does it arrive? 
you probably aren't going to get a rapid response with a hotline, uh, quite honestly, um, because of the limitations. What they would do is, in general, connect you with local police officer, if there is one that's been trained, or FBI that's in the area. So they might even offer to make that call and, and then take your number and call you back. But do not expect that you, know, you call the national hotline number that in two hours they can have somebody at your office. That's why it really I like it to use them to get the local connections and then begin making those local connections yourself so you can pick up the phone and, and call and know who you're calling. Yes? Any comments about the reintegration of uh, the victims into the society? Because sometimes because of stigma, they are not going to be easy to reintegrate into families. Yeah, the question is uh, the comment about the integration, reintegration of the victims back into society. It's, it's very difficult, especially for international victims. Um, most of them are here because they want to be here, um, but they do decide to want, they want to go home. And if the, their family members find out they were involved in commercial sexual exploitation, they are ashamed. They don't understand the whole issue of trafficking, so it makes it very difficult for them. If they do end up staying in the United States, and there is a T visa that they can apply for, but to get a T visa, they have to agree to prosecute the trafficker. And a lot of them don't want to prosecute the trafficker. Just like 90% of women that are sexually assaulted don't prosecute the rapist. They want to leave it behind them. So it really puts the FBI in, in a bad situation. In terms of domestic victims, the problem is not so much stigma, but again, their low self-esteem and their traumatic background makes it more difficult for them to really reintegrate into a normal population. But it can be done. You've got you to get past the trauma bonding. You've got to get past all the trauma that they've had, the low self-esteem and psychological issues that they've got. Yes, last question, and then I don't know what, what we have, but I'll, I'll be up here uh, uh, hanging around if anybody has any others. Yes? If there's one particular uh, video or education module uh, you would recommend that might be useful for in-services? In-services? In, in hospital? Or, or I'm thinking I, I was in therapy. Okay. It would all really depend. Uh, the first one is domestic trafficking, and I'm not going to remember all of them, but the first one I put together was domestic trafficking. The second one is put together by Dr. Catherine Welch, who's spoken here many times in the past on international trafficking. Then we have um, identification as Module 6 within the healthcare setting. So I would answer that question by saying it depends on the kind of person that you're seeing and the kind of trafficking. So if you're seeing a lot of internationals, then you'd want to you want to get the international side, health consequences of trafficking. So there's, I don't know that I have a good good way to answer that, other than just looking at your own population. So thank you everybody. I will be up here for a few minutes to answer any other questions.